Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John 1. I get a little bit different perspective uh, than most of y'all do. I'm staring out into the crowd. I get to see things that y'all don't see, most of which are good. Uh, But one of the greatest things I get to see is I watch parents, parents of little ones, parents of less little ones, opening the scriptures with their children. And so I just want to speak a word of encouragement to the moms and dads that are out here seeking to, to disciple your children under the word. Well done. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so even as your children may be a little bit restless, even as, as uh, it may be a bit of a distraction at times, uh, God works through the ministry of the word, even in the youngest of hearts. And so keep on keeping on, parents. We're looking at John 1. In today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus is going to begin calling the disciples, uh, the apostles. These are the men who are going to spend the next three years in very close proximity with Christ. They'll hear him teach. They'll, they'll see his miracles. All but one of them is going to spend the rest of their days in dutiful and sacrificial service to him. But, but as we're going to see, Jesus doesn't call them to serve him because of something he needs. He calls them to serve him because it's what they need. Now, before I read God's word, let's seek his blessing. Lord, we confess that we are often divided-hearted people. We, we just love the world, and, and we often think that there is more satisfaction in this world than there is in you, and that's utterly untrue. But this, the evil one distracts us. The evil one often allures us with earthy uh, temptations. And so I pray that during this time when your word is preached, that you would fix the eyes of our hearts on the Lord Jesus, that they may be fully satisfied in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We've found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's a lot of different directions we could go in this sermon, aren't there? Uh, There's a lot of sermons built into this passage. You know, I I love what we see from John the Baptist here. We we see his heart here. He's amassed a very significant following by this point. And now Jesus comes along, and some of John's disciples are leaving John to follow Jesus. Now, I think that that any of us could feel a tinge of jealousy towards that. We could struggle with that. But John understands his whole job is to point to Christ. You know, this is, this is the second event in a row, second day in a row. We've seen John the Baptist. We looked at this last Sunday. Last Sunday, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Sunday, we see 
Behold the Lamb of God. John really had one message, and that was to preach Christ. And so as people are leaving John to follow Christ, that is actually a sign of success in his ministry. Um, It's a little bit like a parent. Uh, The Bible calls children arrows in, in our quiver. And successful parenting launches children out of the home into the world for, this, for, for a life of gospel fruitfulness. We could talk about evangelism, how Andrew and the other disciple, who I think was John, John, John often makes reference to himself but doesn't say it was him, I think just out of humility, uh, how they've been spending time with Jesus. And after they're done spending time with Jesus, immediately they go out and start sharing the gospel I think there's a lot there uh, that, that we can learn. We could talk about how Jesus takes time with these men, teaching them about the kingdom. And I could ask you, who are you teaching about the kingdom? Who are you taking time out of your schedule to talk to about the Lord Jesus? If I wanted to make you feel really bad, I'd say something like, if the Son of God could find time to do that, what's your excuse? But I don't want to make you feel bad, so I'm not going to say that. Um, We could talk about how impetuous Simon becomes Peter the Rock. Uh, There's so much there. We'll deal with that eventually. They would all be valid directions to go with this passage, but that's not where we're going to go today. We're going to focus today on this kind of peculiar question the Lord asks his disciples, these two disciples in verse 38, what are you seeking? As we try to unpack the question, and I read this passage, I, I don't know, 50 times this week. And I came up with three words that sort of move us through the passage. The first is interrogation. Uh, The second is satisfaction. And the third is transformation. So we're going to follow along with that. The first, interrogation. Jesus puts these men on the spot here. Verse 38, it's a simple but profound question. He says, what are you seeking? Uh, And that's what, if you're using the English Standard Version, that's how it's translated. If you're using the New International Version, the NIV, it's what do you want? Uh, These are Jesus' first spoken words in John's gospel, and and I don't think that's coincidental. It's a very significant question. In a sense, it's laying the foundation of all of John's gospel. What do you you want? It's one of those questions where tone of voice matters. Where do you put the emphasis here? I thought about this a lot as I read it. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And I think that's where the emphasis goes. What do you want? Every way we ask it changes the meaning a little bit, but I think the fourth way, the, what, do you, what do you want? What do you really desire? I think that's at the heart of what our Lord is asking. It, it's a loaded question. I don't think he's asking them, what do you want to go do for dinner? Now, in my house, that is a loaded question at times. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want for dinner? As a pastor, sometimes people ask very loaded questions. I think Jesus is asking a very loaded question here. What is it that you desire in life? What is it that you think will make you happy? Now, St. Augustine said it this way, all men naturally seek their own happiness. And so day by day, the ways you and I spend our time we're actually seeking our own happiness. And you might be saying, no, I spend all my time serving others. Right, but it's because ultimately you think that's why you were created and how you will be most satisfied. All of us, we spend our days doing the things we believe will satisfy us the most. And so when Jesus is saying, what do you want? I think he's really saying, 
what is it that makes you tick? What is it that drives you? What is it that you wake up thinking about? What is it that you go to bed uh, with it on your mind? What do you want? Now, I don't, I don't think these guys understood the profundity of the question because you look, Jesus says, what do you want? And they say back to him, well, where are you staying? And they may not have had a clue what he was asking or they may have well understood the question and they didn't want to show their motives, you know? We were following John because we thought he was going to be the next big thing, but it looks like you're going to be and, and we kind of want to be at your right hand in the kingdom. That's a question they're going to ask later. I think there's a chance that they did understand the question, but they didn't like the answer they would have had to give, and so they changed the subject. Where are you staying? This question, what do you want, cuts to the core of who these men were, and it cuts to the core of who you and I are. It's a timeless question. What do you desire in life? What is it that you're seeking? Security, happiness, meaning, fulfillment, You know, why are you climbing the ladder of success, seeking prestige and promotions and and, uh, positions and all these things? What do you spend your days longing for? What is it that makes you, that makes you tick? I'm going to regret quoting the Eurythmics because nobody younger than me has a clue who they were, but they have a song that goes, everybody's looking for something. And everybody between age 40 and 43 knows what I'm talking about. But most of us, uh, we don't even realize that, that all day, every day, we are living with some desires. We are living towards some end. And so Jesus' question is, is, is very significant. Now, I'll, I'll quote a, a more popular band, you too. What do they say? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that's where most of us are. Uh, I'm seeking something, but I don't know what it is. I'm seeking meaning. I'm seeking fulfillment, but I, I, I can't find it yet. Now, what makes this especially hard in our days is sort of the spirit of our age is something called expressive individualism. It's the idea that the only thing that matters is that I discover my true self so I can be really happy. Uh, cultures for the pa- in the past, for all their warts, for all their flaws, there at least used to be some sort of communal and covenantal understanding of, of really looking out for the good of one another. But, but now, today in our world, our great concern is individual happiness with very little regard for how it affects other people, how it might affect uh, us in the future. And, and so that's how we get into a place where we have boys who say that they're girls and, and two men who say that they're married and, and how we get to a place that we say you can abort a baby if it's inconvenient. All in the name of seeking my own individual happiness and it makes us insane and it makes us miserable. There's a a fascinating phenomenon. I see it a lot in my reading. I see it a lot in my counseling when I meet with people, and I see it a lot in my own heart. And that is, the more we are seeking self-fulfillment, the more we're seeking our own happiness, and our own happiness becomes the goal, the end for which we are living, the less happy we're going to be. The more our desires are are fixed upon self-fulfillment, what it typically leads to is self-pity. And that's why we see people who really seem to have it all, and they're miserable. And that's why, that's true, really, for our whole culture. We have more stuff than we've ever had. We have less hardship than we've ever had. We can minimize and anesthetize pain like we've never been able to do before, and yet constantly studies come out showing that we are unhappier than any culture in history. 
Well under half of Americans say that they're happy, and every year that's, that number seems to be going down. And we're deploying every weapon at our disposal to attack unhappiness. I, uh, there was a quote a number of years ago by the CFO of Google, and he said this, Google is an engineering company with all our computer scientists who see the world as a completely broken place. Now, what's implicit in what he's saying is the world is broken and our technology exists to fix it. And so we, we keep thinking new technology is going to come out that's going to, to make us happy. It's going to give us what we need. And what's the net result of social media? What's the net result of having everything at our disposal? It's increased unhappiness. We, we scroll social media constantly and we see how happy everyone else looks and how miserable we are and it only amplifies it. We look on Amazon and we find all the things that we don't have and hope we would be happy if we finally had them. What are you seeking? That's the question Jesus asks here. What are you seeking? That's the question I ask for you. What is it that makes you tick that you think, if I had this, I would really be happy? Let's look second at satisfaction. I think there's something implicit in what Jesus is asking here. That is, if you are seeking, if what you're seeking is limited to this world, you will never, ever find it. If there is a happiness that you are seeking that is bound to the confines of earth, happiness will always exceed what you can attain in this life. St. Augustine said it this way 1,650 years ago, our hearts remain restless till they rest in thee. Our hearts remain restless till they rest in thee. He's just saying the same thing Jesus frequently says. He's saying what the scriptures frequently say. Everything that our hearts long for, the things we want, can ultimately only be satisfied in knowing Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear on this. This is not prosperity gospel junk here. The prosperity gospel teaches if you'll just come to Jesus, then you'll have health and wealth and, and all sorts of prosperity. That is heretical garbage. Just ask the, the apostles, how, how easy, how healthy and prosperous were you for the rest of your life after you started following Christ? Oh, you were beheaded? Oh, you were exiled to an island? See, they understood that joy comes not through stuff. Satisfaction comes not through stuff, but through knowing God. Um, I thought about this in my own time in the Word this week. Mark 1, Jesus is doing all sorts of miracles He's healing people. He's doing things. Huge crowds are starting to follow him. And his disciples come and say, kind of, hey, things are really moving along. This is pretty exciting. And Jesus says in chapter 1, let us go to the next towns also that I may preach there, for that's why I came. If Jesus, if all Jesus, if all we needed was a little bit of health and wealth and prosperity, Jesus would have come to us for that end. But the end for which Jesus came is to preach about how we can be reconciled to God. And that's where earthly satisfaction falls short, that you may have all this world has to offer and be utterly miserable because you are not right with God. That's why Jesus asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? You can have it all, but if you do not have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have Jesus, even if you have nothing else, you have it all. Look with me at Matthew 6 for a moment. 
the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching there, and he, he's talking about anxiety. We know nothing about anxiety, do we? Anxiety is when we fear that our earthly desires will not be met or not be wet, met the way we think they should. Matthew 6, 31, Jesus says, Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. In other words, you can seek all this stuff, and it'll make you miserable. You'll be riddled with anxiety. Moths and rust destroy it. Thieves break in and steal it. But you seek Christ, and you receive a treasure you cannot lose, an inheritance that can never be taken. It can never be corrupted. Jesus alone can satisfy hungry souls. And the problem for you and me is that in our arrogance, we think we know better ways to be happy than in Jesus Christ. And so we go our own way. Uh, we live according to our own devices and our own idols, and we think that, that going our own way will ultimately make us happier. And we're worried about, about such earthy things, about our looks, about our bank accounts, our reputation, our stuff, and we think if all that can get in order, then I'll really be happy. If that were true, then God would have sent his son to do a few motivational talks or, or to be a, 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 an investment advisor or to tell us how to win friends and influence people. But he sent his son to save the world, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. That's why Jesus came. You know, even as Christians, we can talk about Jesus, we can show up to church, but don't we so often really want to be in charge of our time? We want to be in charge of our money. We want to be in charge of, uh, of how we spend it all. That's why so many Christians look so much like the world and so few experience what John 10 talks about. Jesus says, I've come that they'd have life and have it to the fullest. There is no such thing of, as fullness of life when your eyes are bound to this world. They must be fixed upon Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 35. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold, fix your eyes upon Him. This is the one for whom all of heaven and earth were created, and your souls were created to rejoice in Him. And He alone can bring that. You see, the thing that makes life miserable is sin. It's when we look to this world thinking this world can make us happier than God can. That's what, what sin is. It's dissatisfaction with God. I need something more than you, God. I need something better than you. That's what it was in the garden for Adam and Eve, and that's you and me today. Every time we're sin, we sin, we're saying, God, I know a better way, and I'm going to follow my way rather than your way. And then what sin does is it produces greater dissatisfaction in our hearts because we have to sin more and more and more to try to seek happiness. Sin always promises delight and delivers misery. I know what I'll do. I'll get a little bit of religion. We see this a lot. Folks who've sort of hit rock bottom or think they have. Maybe I'll get a little religion. Maybe I'll clean up my life. Do you know what religion without Jesus does? Do you know what 
what religion without Jesus does, either on the one hand, it will crush you under the weight of law that you cannot keep, or you will think you've kept those laws, and you will be the most arrogant and insufferable person in the world. That's what, what religion without Jesus does. Jesus talks about that in Luke 11. Uh, listen to this, verses 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What's, what's the image there? Somebody who says, you know, I, I'm tired of being the way I'm gonna, I've been. I'm going to find some religion. I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to quit doing those things I've been doing. And Jesus says, yeah, the evil spirit just comes back and finds a neatly cleaned house to dwell in and invites all his friends, and you become worse than you were before. That's what religion without Jesus does. And oftentimes, we're guilty of the same thing today, even as professing Christians. We want just enough Jesus to satisfy our conscience. We're not willing to give enough to satisfy our souls. And so we're here on Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, but oftentimes we've got that do not disturb sign hanging around our necks, don't we? And I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to surrender my life. because we want to keep seeking Jesus plus, don't we? The satisfaction that Jesus alone can provide is always going to be elusive until you seek Jesus alone. We're content with a little Jesus and a lot of other stuff. If my circumstances were better, if I, if I had more of this, if my husband was easier to deal with, if my wife was different, and we just fix our eyes once again on the world, and sometimes we worry, if I really start to follow Jesus, he's going to take control away from me. What's he going to do? What's so tragic about that is that Jesus delights to satisfy the hearts of those he loves so dearly. He doesn't make empty promises in the scriptures. What he has promised to us, he gladly fulfills. And so the soul that seeks satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone will find satisfaction when seeking Jesus alone. That's why one author, speaking specifically of the South, I, I love this quote, she said, we have enough Jesus to be Christ cursed, but not enough to be Christ blessed. We seek Jesus, but we have one eye on the world, and we don't get it. But when we seek Jesus, as C.S. Lewis says, when we seek him, we get the world thrown in. Well, after these two disciples have their awkward comment, where do you stay? Jesus spends the rest of the day talking with them. We don't know what they talked about. I can't imagine they talked about the, the furniture in the room or the national championship game. I, I feel sure they were talking about what it means to follow Christ. And these men, when they leave Jesus, are utterly transformed. Andrew immediately goes and finds his brother Simon and tells him, we've found the Messiah. This is what Christians do when we've met with Jesus. We are transformed so that we are different people. Well, that leads to this final point, transformation. They spend an afternoon with Jesus. They leave. They're different people. Andrew tells Peter, Peter is transformed. I'm not really going to deal with this, but it, it, it was Simon, and Jesus says, I'll call you Peter, uh, showing what he's going to do in Peter's life, that this impetuous uh, man is going to become rock solid, and he does by the end of his life, faithful to the Lord Jesus till the end. 
But time with Jesus Christ utterly transforms us. That's what happened with them. It's not that they just became religious. They were already deeply religious people. Lost people can be religious. Lost man's religion is behave, behave, behave. Christianity says, behold, behold, behold. That's John's message, behold the Lamb of God. And as we behold the Lord Jesus, it transforms our souls so that he becomes our chief delight. One of the most significant sermons of the 1800s was preached by a man most of you have never heard of, probably his name was Thomas Chalmers. The sermon uh, was preached in Scotland. He was a seminary professor and pastor there. He had a tremendous impact on one of my heroes, Robert Murray McShane, as well as probably many of your heroes, John Piper, Alistair Begg, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, often quote this sermon by Chalmers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I printed about 10 copies of it and put it on, uh, in the narthex, but you can find it on the internet easily. Let me define what this title means. The expulsive power, that means the ability to remove or displace something else. A new affection. A- affection is that thing that our hearts love and delight in and crave. The new affection is the answer to the what do you want question. The point Chalmers is making with the title and with the whole sermon is that the love of God, naturally speaking, and the love of the world, naturally speaking, is so rooted in our hearts. The allurements of the world are so enticing to us that the only possible way that the love of the world can be removed, expelled from our hearts, is if we love something greater, is if our eyes behold something that makes the things of earth grow strangely dim. Uh, Chalmers is talking about the power of, of love of God to expel from our hearts the love of the world. You know, it's what we, we're going to sing in a few minutes. Be thou my vision, that great line, thou and thou only, first in my heart. That's what happens when we've really beheld Jesus is he becomes what we long for and desire and crave. Dissatisfaction with this world can only be reversed and driven out by an affection that is both greater than and opposite to it. In looking to Jesus, we encounter one whose glory is so far above the lesser glories of this world that it's like the sun shining above a small ball of dung on the earth. These things are nothing compared to the glory of Him. What it means to really be transformed by Christ is not merely a a behavior change. It's that you begin to answer the what do you want question differently. What do you want? I just, I want my, uh, I want a better job. I want to be financially secure. I want more friends. When you've encountered Jesus, the thing that takes the place of all those earthy wants in our heart is I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what we need, uh, dear ones. And we can't have it if our minds and our hearts are so transfixed on stuff, 
If they're so transfixed on our prominence and prestige and positions and all these earthy things and possessions, if our eyes are fixed on them, we will never know the joy, the satisfaction of knowing Christ. That's what we need. Not a little more Jesus as the cherry on top of our lives. We need our lives completely overhauled, transformed, so that the chief affection of our lives is the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, what do you want? You've got something that makes you tick. And if it is bound by the limits of this world, it will never satisfy you. But when your chief desire and your greatest affection is to know Christ and to make him known, then you can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my chosen portion. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Whatever you're seeking, dear ones, behold the Lamb of God. How do we apply this? Three thoughts. First, I want to encourage you to consider what is it in your life that is dimming your vision for Christ? Thou and thou only, first in my heart. What is it that's, that's really occupying the throne of your heart that really only belongs to Jesus? And it's dimming your vision of him. And, and it's, 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 it's uh, doling your love for him. All of us have things. I love the quote by John Piper. The greatest enemy to our love for God is probably not scandalous sin, it's apple pie. And what he means by that is it's all the world's small earthly pleasures that we look to that dull our love for Jesus Christ. And we can be so earthbound in our hearts and in our affections that there's just nothing left to love Jesus with. And so I want to encourage you what is it that you treasure? And I want to ask you, can you not see how Christ is infinitely better than what that thing is? It may be a good thing. It, it may be a very good thing. It, it may be family. It, it may be uh, a hobby. But if you cannot see that Jesus Christ is infinitely better than that thing, then for the joy and health of your own heart and the glory of God, address that. Reorder your life. Think about that today. How can I reorder my life so that Jesus Christ would truly be first in my heart? Second, the Christian who seeks Christ above all else is a great blessing to the world. You know, sometimes we hear that, that silly saying that somebody's too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. That's ridiculous. The more heavenly-minded we are, the more of a blessing we become to the world around us. As Jesus becomes the chief affection of our lives, we don't become absentee husbands or wives just spending all day in prayer and never tending to our duties. We don't become poor employees we don't become absentee parents. When I love Jesus, I'm going to love my wife better because his love will enable me to love her more. It, it, it will animate my parenting so that my chief desire in parenting is not to raise good little moral children, but to raise children in the nurture and admonition of Christ so that one day they can be launched out as gospel arrows into the world. It animates my work. How, 
How can I, for those in the medical field, how do I see this patient to the glory of God? How do I put together this furniture to the glory of God? How do I sell this house to the glory of God? And it makes us better at what we do. It makes us a blessing to the world when we love Christ. There's no such thing as being so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. Third application, we get it from Andrew. Andrew was not a prominent disciple compared to Peter or John. He, he really only gets attention in a few places. Here, uh, in the story of the fish and the loaves, and then in John 12, when some Greeks come inquiring, they want to see Jesus, and he, Andrew deals with them. On those occasions, those three times, what's he doing? He's always bringing people to Jesus, isn't he? In fact, he brought Peter to Jesus, um, the ambassador, the leader of the apostles, the one who preached that great Pentecost sermon, and 3,000 were converted. And it was through Andrew's ministry to him. See, one of the ways which we will know that we've truly met Christ, that we've understood this is the, the Lamb of God who takes away not just the sin of the world, but my sin. One of the ways we really know we've met him will be that we desire to go out and tell others about him, uh, especially those who we love. And I know that those closest to us are often those hardest to talk to about Jesus. But what you see Andrew doing is he, he meets Jesus and immediately he goes to his brother. And I imagine Peter was not the most easy person to deal with. And yet he says, let me tell you, we found the Messiah. The desire of his heart, first thing, was to find his brother, to tell his brother about the Messiah and bring his brother to Jesus. We really need to examine our hearts. If we do not have desire to proclaim Christ to others, it's not that we weren't gifted to do that. It's not that we're not called to do that. We are called and gifted to tell people about our Savior. It's that something is dimming our affections for Jesus so that we are unwilling to tell the world of who he is. So let's search our hearts. Why are we not speaking more of Jesus Christ to the world? Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, you are infinitely worthy of all our attention and all our affections, and I pray that we would be captive to you, that every longing of our heart, every thought of our minds would drive us to your feet. I pray, Father, there are some in this room who are utterly miserable because they have been seeking to fit a, a square peg into a round hole. They have been seeking to see their hearts satisfied by earthy stuff when only the Lamb of God can do it. And so I pray, Father, for all of us who have restless hearts, and that is all of us, that we would turn the eyes of our hearts to the Lord Jesus, to know him, to be satisfied in him, and to be transformed by him for his glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.